Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come, and forever and ever. Note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come, and forever and ever. I don't think there's any two doubt there that when God wanted something written in a book, that it'll be for this time, their time, and forever and ever. If you can now turn to Psalm 138 and verse 2. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Again, showing the importance of God's word. And one final reading just to open, Second Corinthians chapter 2 and 17. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll speak a lot more on this verse. But for what I want to say today, to show the directions of the Bible, it's very important. So Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God and the sight of God speak we in Christ. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is eternal. I thank you, Lord, that you value your word way above your name. I thank you this morning, Lord, that your word is forever settled in heaven. And I thank you this morning, Lord, that your word did come to this earth as an infant child who grew to live a sinless life, to die on that old rugged cross, to be resurrected on that third day, and who one day is coming back for his redeemed bride. So, Father, I ask you to shut us in with yourself. I ask you, Lord, that your word would go forth and that your word would be understood. For us in Jesus' name I pray, giving you thanks. Amen. The reason why this study even came about, very simply, is because the venom and the attacks on the King James Version of the Bible is probably at the strongest that I've ever seen. I got saved back in 2003, and there were some niggly things going on back then, but right now, in this, this modern age, the venom that is put towards this book is unbelievable. If you don't agree with it, you shouldn't attack it. But that's the reason why this series came into being. So just as a recap, last week, together we explored God's Word, not only in the Old Testament, but further into the New Testament. We looked at techniques used by God and his preservation, as well as setting the scene for the attack. We looked at Jesus, who is the eternal word, past, present, and future, and how he came to earth to proclaim his word, and who in turn was so perfectly content with that word that it wasn't only settled in heaven, but it would stand forever. We looked at how God's word has been removed from schools, Educational science teaches the fable of evolution, because that's what it is. Removed from courts, 
marriage ceremonies, and even out of our very modern liberal churches. We look briefly at how modern theologians claim that since the original autographs no longer exist or they're no longer around, then we do not have the complete and fallible word of God. We explored the scriptures showing that God himself wrote on tablets to Moses then breaking them and God himself copying the original words. We showed how it was required of all the kings of Israel that when they took the throne that they would have a copy of the law written in a book. To the story of Jeremiah where the king cut up and burned the word of God only for God to command the rewriting of the former words which were in the first scroll. We established that the Old Testament proves that God was well capable of having his word written down. Broken, destroyed, copied, burned and rewritten. It just did not matter in the providential care of God. We then travelled to the New Testament to show that the very word was clothed in flesh. Born as an infant to grow as a man who would boldly and physically declare his voice. How Jesus himself recognised Moses in the Gospel of Mark, recognised David in the Gospel of Luke and Daniel in the Gospel of Matthew, all by name as the author of their Old Testament books. How Jesus recognized the Old Testament as the Scriptures, as well as giving grounded reasons for the Holy Ghost being recognized as the sole power for the inspiration of guiding the authors of the written Word of God. I was rounded off by showing that the enemy of your soul has attacked God's revelation, and that it did not end in the Garden of Eden, and how these attacks have continued unabated into the New Testament using two primary tactics, doubt and subtraction, by challenging God's word in the Garden with Eve to altering the meaning of Scripture when he was confronted with the very author of that word. I ask you to remember that God's word is eternal. God's word became flesh. God's word is inspired. God's word is forever settled in heaven. God's word has been perfectly preserved and God's word is always under attack. And I also ask you to remember this one thing if you've forgotten everything else. If you don't believe in the total sovereignty of God, you cannot fully grasp the full total inspiration of God and in turn the full preservation of God. And I stated last week, we're on a journey. I believe three weeks it may possibly now be four, if that's granted. So as we continue our journey from the beginning, ex nihilo, to this very published book, we must of necessity look at the directions the scriptures actually went. This morning will be more of a history lesson in order to follow this book. So there's a story of two paths. One is scriptural, one is not. The Old Testament, as it was, was accepted by all the authors of the New Testament, particularly Jesus. And as the New Age came, the New Testament letters and Gospels, which were only recently written down, were traded from churches to churches and copied diligently. At this point in time, all the scrolls were gathered together in the city of Antioch in Syria. And why is that important? If you turn with me to Acts chapter 11... I'm read verses 26 and 27. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. 
And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem on the Antioch. So we can see the importance of that Syrian capital. And it was to the north of where the New Testament story had unfolded. This was a northern stream of God's preserved word in the Greek. And as scripture shows, it clearly was a center of Christianity. For Christians were called that name first in Antioch. So this paved the way for the carrying of the gospel. The scriptures went north and west following after the house of Israel. An important point to note was that everyone at that time spoke in Greek as it was the trade language used to communicate all over the Roman Empire. It was also the language of the educated philosophers. Here the road heads south to Egypt and more particularly the city of Alexandria. And I just noted this morning um, I initially had six pages worth of information on the city of Alexandria, so I had to cut it down to one. So the historian and scholar Mangazarian once wrote, and I've used someone who was not a Christian to give you an idea of what this place was like. Under the Ptolemies, a line of Greek kings, Alexandria soon sprang into eminence, and accumulating culture and wealth became the most powerful metropolis of the Orient. Serving as the port of Europe, it attracted the lucrative trade of India and Arabia. Its markets were enriched with the gorgeous silks and fabrics from the bazaars of the Orient. Wealth wealth brought leisure and in turn the arts. It became in time the home of a wonderful library and schools of philosophy. Representing all the phases and the most delicate shades of thought, at one time it was a general belief that the mantle of Athens had fallen upon the shoulders of Alexandria. The city grew to become the largest in the known world at the time, attracting scholars, scientists, philosophers, mathematicians, artists, and historians. It was also home to one of the most fascinating libraries known to man. It begun under Ptolemy I and was completed by Ptolemy II, who sent invitations to rulers and scholars asking them to contribute books. According to historians Oakes and Galen, There was room for up to 70,000 papyrus scrolls. Most of the items were bought, but other means were sometimes used. In order to procure coveted works, all ships entering the harbour were searched. Every book found was taken to the library, where it was decided whether to give it back or confiscate it and replace it with a copy. And those aren't my words. So you can see that it was a centre of education and learning. That's where everything went, and they had some library. So it was in this city of Alexandria that we meet a man called Origen. You couldn't make it up. Origen. Origen, like many people and doctrines today, are widely accepted, accepted in Christendom, regardless of their belief or foundations. Origen did not like God's preserved word. Why? Because he was a scholar. And during his life, he ruled out over 2,000 books all of which were infected with his Greek philosophy, many filled with his way of interpreting the Bible. Origen was not 
a Bible believer as such. He believed some of the truths, but he did not believe in the New Testament miracles. Origen did not believe many of Jesus' words or stories. He did not believe that the Holy Spirit was eternal, nor did he believe that Jesus Christ is Almighty God. His thoughts and desires were centered on his own learning. Origen translated the original Hebrew scriptures into Greek as he believed that the Greek tongue was was much superior to that of the Hebrew. Therefore, losing the original meaning as influenced by the Holy Spirit as seen in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, which we read last week, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Origen gave the world his Bible, not God's. And this became known as the Alexandrian Bible. After he died, his counterfeit Bible was copied by other scholars. The scholars at Alexandria wrote three particular Bible perversions. And this isn't the week we're going to talk about these. But they're called Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrius. You may have heard those names. These versions or codexes are important as they are the older manuscripts so readily cited by by today's modern scholars. So you can see the cities of Antioch, one preserves. You can see the city of Alexandria, one perverts. So now we have the direction of the Bibles. The battle commences. Not for the authority of God's word, but for the accuracy of it. We read in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5 that every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. God is not preserving man's language, brothers and sisters. He's preserving his own word. And just as a footnote, if you think the KJV is hard to read, you want to try reading it in the Greek. By the end of the first century AD, the New Testament had been completed It was preserved in Greek on papyrus, a thin paper-like material made from crushed and flattened stalks of a reed-like plant. The word Bible comes from the same Greek root word as papyrus. The papyrus sheets were bound or tied together in a configuration much similar to the modern books that we have today as opposed to an elongated scroll. These early Greek texts were known as the Texas Receptus or the Received Text as it would be later called. It was also to be translated into old Latin before a man called Jerome perverted it with the Latin Vulgate and was called initially the Italic Bible. The Vaudoi, if I got that right, later called the Waldensians of northern Italy used the Italic Bible. There was a school in Antioch of Syria in very early Christian times that had them ancient manuscripts of the scriptures. Preachers held to the Syrian text that agrees with our KJV. The Vaudoi, we are the Waldensians, and the Albigenses, and more importantly, the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, and Knox, all held to the received text, or as we call it, the Texas Receptus. They're also known as the Byzantine family. And they were the dominant text in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Most Greek manuscripts of the New Testament are Byzantine texts. And that's how we know them today as the majority texts. 
From 95 to 150 AD, the Greek Vulgate, which was a copy of the originals, was widely circulated among the foundational churches. Later, in 120 AD, the Vaudoi, or the Waldensian Bible, had been widely used. And from 150 AD, the Persida Syrian copy followed by the first translation into Latin. In 157 AD, the Italic Bible from the old Latin Vulgate used in northern Italy to the widely circulated the Gallic Bible, modern France, in 177 AD. And by 350 to 400 AD, the Texas Receptus is the dominant text. And by 400 AD was the version favoured by Augustine. From 450 to 1450 AD, the text used by true believers of Jesus Christ was the Byzantine text dominant. By 500 AD, the Bible had been translated into many other languages. However, the religious mood was changing. A dominant force, unlike anything else seen before in history, was starting to form. Just one century later, by 600 AD, the Bible had been restricted to only one language, the Latin Vulgate. And that powerful force rising out of the old Roman Empire, ruled by the Caesars, was starting to cast a shadow right across Europe and the rest of the world. Can you turn with me now to Revelation chapter 13? And verse 4 through 8. Just to give you some sense that God is always in control. Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. And they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God. They blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Brothers and sisters, note that. To make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all the kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, there seems to be a bit of misunderstanding that because the Bible seemed to go quiet and Christianity seemed to go dark for about a thousand years, that somehow God wasn't in control. He was. It says that this dragon, this beast, would make war with the saints and would overcome them. And he had dominion and power over kindreds and tongues and nations. The only organized and recognized church at that time in history was the Catholic Church of Rome. And they refused to allow the scriptures to be available in any language other than Latin. Those in possession of the non-Latin scriptures would be executed. This was because only the priests were educated to understand Latin. And this gave the church ultimate power. A power to rule without question. A power to deceive. A power to extort money from the masses. Nobody could question their biblical teachings because few people other than priests could read Latin. The church capitalized on this forced ignorance through the 1,000-year period from 400 AD 
to 1400 AD, known as the Dark and Middle Ages. Although Rome was casting her net, the Bible was still progressing. From 1100 to 1300 AD, the Latin Bible of the Waldesians, dating back as far as the 2nd century, God's elect was still alive and well. The word of God was continuing to be guarded, protected, and preserved. Pope Leo X established a practice called the selling of indulgences. And this is important because it was a way to extort money from the people. He offered forgiveness of sins for a fairly small amount of money. And was probably everything to a lot of people. For a little bit more money, you would be allowed to indulge in a continuous lifestyle of sin. Although through the invention of purgatory, you could purchase salvation for your loved one's souls. The church taught the ignorant masses, as soon as the coin in the copper rings, the troubled soul from purgatory springs. Pope Leo X showed his true feelings when he said, the fable of Christ has been quite profitable to us. So where was the true church of God during these dark ages? Well, brothers and sisters, they were sprung all over Europe. And I could probably speak for half an hour or more on each of these enclaves of Christians. But there's one that really stands out. On the Scottish island of Iona, in 563 AD, a man called Columba started a Bible college. For the next 700 years, this was the source of much of the non-Catholic, evangelical Bible teaching through those centuries of the Dark and Middle Ages. The students of this college were called Chaldees, which means certain stranger. The Chaldees were a secret society, and the remnant of the true Christian faith was kept alive by these men during the many centuries that led up to the Protestant Reformation. In fact, the first man to be called a Chaldee was Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible tells us that Joseph of Arimathea gave up his tomb for Jesus. Tradition tells us that he was actually the uncle of Mary and therefore the great uncle or half uncle at least of Jesus. It is also believed that Joseph of Arimathea traveled to the British Isles shortly after the resurrection of Christ and built the first Christian church above ground there. Tradition also tells us that Jesus may have spent much of his young adult life between 13 and 30 traveling the world with his great uncle Joseph. Well, the Bible is silent in these things. We can't really say for sure. But I'd have thought over the last couple of days, brothers and sisters, that if you're the spoken word of God and you spoke everything into existence, wouldn't you want to travel a wee bit? Get to see what you spoke. Now the pivotal hand of God was fully in play. Involved in a series of events that would literally shake the world as they knew it and as we know it today. Firstly, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in the 1450s. And the first book to ever be printed was a Latin language Bible. Printed in Mainz, Germany. And ironically, though he had created what many believed to the most important invention in history, he was the victim of unscrupulous business associates who took control of his business and left him in poverty. Nevertheless, the invention of the movable type printer
printing press meant the Bibles and books could finally be effectively produced in large quantities in a short period of time. And this was essential to the success of the Reformation. In the late 1300s, the Society of Chaldees chose a man called John Wycliffe to lead the world out of the Dark Ages. Wycliffe had been called the morning star of the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was about one thing, getting the word of God back into the hands of the masses in their own native language. So that the corrupt church would be exposed and the message of salvation in Christ alone, by scripture alone, through faith alone, would be proclaimed again. So in 1384 AD, the Wycliffe Bible was published. Then came a great scholar by the name of Erasmus. He was so moved to correct the corrupt Latin Vulgate that in 1516, with the help of printer John Phoban, he published a Greek-Latin parallel New Testament. The Latin part was not the corrupt Vulgate, but his own fresh rendering of the text from the more accurate and reliable Greek, which he had managed to collate from a half-dozen partial old Greek New Testament manuscripts he had acquired. This milestone was the first non-Latin Vulgate text of the Scripture to be produced in a millennium, and the first ever to come off a printing press. The 1516 Greek-Latin New Testament of Erasmus further focused attention on just how corrupt and inaccurate the Latin Vulgate had become, and how important it was to go back and use the original Greek New Testament and the original Hebrew Old Testament languages to maintain accuracy. And they translate them faithfully into the languages of the common people, whether that be English, German, or any other tongue. So from there we go to Germany. The year 1483, there was born a man by the name of Martin Luther, who went on to become one of Western history's most significant figures. Luther spent his early years in relative anonymity as a monk and scholar, but in 1517 he penned a document attacking the Catholic Church's corrupt practice of selling indulgences to absolve sin. His 95 Theses, which propounded two central beliefs, that the Bible is the central religious authority and that humans may reach salvation only by their faith and not by their deeds. This was to spark the Protestant Reformation. Although these ideas had been advanced before, Martin Luther codified them at a moment in history ripe for Christian Reformation, all in God's time. The Catholic Church was ever after divided, and Protestantism that soon emerged, or the Protestantism that soon emerged, was shaped by Luther's ideas. His writings changed the course of Christian and cultural history in the West. In the early 16th century Europe, some theologians and scholars were beginning to question the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It was also around this time that translations of original texts, namely the Bible and the writings of the early church philosopher Augustine, became more widely available. Augustine, in case you don't know, lived from 340 to 430 
AD and it emphasized the primacy of the Bible rather than church officials as the ultimate religious authority. He also believed that humans could not reach salvation by their own acts, but that only God could bestow salvation by his divine grace. In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church taught that salvation was possible through good works or works of righteousness that please God. Unfortunately, that still happens today. Luther came to share Augustine's two central beliefs, which would later form the basis of Protestantism. Committed to the idea that salvation could be reached through faith and by divine grace only, Luther vigorously objected to the corrupt practice of selling indulgences. Acting on this belief, he wrote, the disputation on the power and efficiency of indulgences are known as the 95 Thesis, to which he calmly nailed the door of Wittenberg Castle Church. The 95 Thesis, which would later become the foundation, in addition to the criticisms of indulgences, Luther also reflected popular sentiment about St. Peter's scandal. Now this was about the Basilica. Why does not the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Caesars, build the Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers? Luther was summoned to every cardinal the Pope could instruct. He never renounced his renewed vision. On April 17, 1521, Luther appeared before the Diet of Worms in Germany. Refusing again to recant, Luther concluded his testimony with the defiant statement, Here I stand, God help me. I can do no other. On May 25th, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V signed an edict against Luther, ordering his writings to be burned. Luther hid in a German town in the countryside for the next year where he began work on one of his major life projects, the translation of the whole Bible into German. Brothers and sisters, the world was waking up. And just as a footnote, this is nothing against Roman Catholic people. It's the system with which has dominated them for many, many years. Taking money of them, hundreds and thousands of pounds with nothing more than a guarantee of a place that doesn't exist. Martin Luther was born a Roman Catholic. He grew up a Roman Catholic. And he got saved, gloriously saved. And it was the sale of indulgences which really sparked the Reformation. Then came William Tyndale, described as the captain of the army of reformers. Tyndale holds the distinction of being the first man to ever print the New Testament in the English language. Tyndale was a true scholar and a genius, so fluent in eight languages that it was said one would think that any one of them would be his native tongue. He is frequently referred to as the architect of the English language, even more so than William Shakespeare. As so many of his phrases are still coined in our language today. William Tyndale wanted to use the same 1516 Erasmus text as a source to translate and print the New Testament in English for the first time in history. So much so that Tyndale showed up on Luther's doorstep in Germany in 1525 and by year's end had translated the New Testament into English. Tyndale had been forced to flee England because of the widespread rumour that his English New Testament project was underway causing inquisitors and bounty hunters 
to be constantly on Tyndale's trail to arrest him and prevent this project from happening. God foiled their plans. And in 1525, 1526, the Tyndale New Testament became the first printed edition of the scriptures in the English language. Having God's word available to the public and the language of the common man, English would have meant disaster to the church. No longer would they control access to the scriptures. If people were able to read the Bible in their own tongue, the church's income and power would crumble. They could not possibly continue to get away with selling indulgences, the forgiveness of sins, or selling the release of loved ones from a church-manufactured purgatory. People would begin to challenge the church's authority if the church was exposed as frauds and thieves. And again, as a footnote, there's many Protestant churches like that today as well. The contradictions between what God's word said and what the priest taught would open the public's eyes and the truth would set them free from the grip of fear that the institutional church held. Salvation through faith, not works or donations, would be understood. The need for priests would vanish through the priesthood of all believers. The veneration of church canonized saints and Mary would be called into question. The availability of the scriptures in English was the biggest threat imaginable to a wicked church. Neither side would give up without a fight. Brothers and sisters, that was led us to the KJV. It has had a very colorful journey, but a journey nonetheless that was God-preserved. God himself said that he would allow the saints to be overcome for a period of time. And the devil using other nations, other tongues, and wicked translations would seek to try and create a Bible that would be inaccurate and full of falsehoods. God sent the Lord Jesus Christ at a perfect time in history. When he completed what he came to do, he said, it is finished. And then the work was complete. What happened through that work still lives today. You see, brothers and sisters, we talk about the Holy Ghost. And I mean this with all due respect, like it's some sort of poodle that comes along with the the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit is fully the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we sing our praises in church on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, when we have our times of contemplation at home at night, when we book ourselves in to go and see Christian concerts and bands, we want to meet with the Holy Ghost. Because there is power. Just as God did with the incarnate, incarnate word, so he has done with his written word. God's translation work for the English Bible was completed with the King James Version, or what we call the Authorized Version. It happened in the fullness of time. The King James Bible came at the perfect time in history when English was at the perfect stage of development and when the hearts of the people were prepared to accept it. The Reformation and the Puritan movement was in full swing and the nations were soon to witness the greatest worldwide missionary outreach in history. 
And you could speak for weeks on foreign missionaries and where they came from. I believe, as I know this church believes in the sovereignty of God and history. Psalm 22 and 28 says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. God has set his mark upon many things in this world and will reveal his divine hand at work in history. Have you ever asked yourself the question why we use a seven-day week instead of ten? Ask that to an atheist. Or why do we use the letters B.C. before Christ or A.D.? Anno Domini, year of our Lord. I know atheists and stuff are trying to remove it out. But it's been there from the start of time. England just happens to be the one nation from which we measure true time. Greenwich time, zero hour. And from which we measure true position, zero longitude. Another happy coincidence about the King James Bible is that it was sanctioned by a ruling king and his name was James. The English equivalent of the Hebrew, Jacob. Ecclesiastes 8 and 4 says, Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? In 1611, the English language was spoken by a mere 3% of the world's population. But today, English has become the closest thing to a universal language and history, much like Greek was back in the time of the New Testament. God used the King James Version of the Bible to carry his words to the far ends of the earth where it was translated into hundreds of languages by English and American missionaries for over 300 years. The sun never set on the British Empire and the Bible, the King James Version, was even taken into space by American astronauts and read from there. God knew he would use England as language and the King James Bible to accomplish all these things long before they happened. It is the only Bible God has providentially used in this way. It is the only Bible believed by thousands upon thousands of believers to be inspired and fallible in the true words of God. So brothers and sisters, I've shown a timeline last week from Acts and the Halo, right through the Old Testament, right to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was fully the Word of God, manifest in flesh. His very words he spoke and he confirmed the Old Testament. But his very, very words he confirmed who he was. He confirmed the power of the Holy Spirit. And through the New Testament, we can see very clearly that God's people went in a certain direction. And that's another subject. A massive subject. Jesus said he came to save the sheep of the lost house of Israel. So they headed north and west. And that's the direction the Bible went. And I have so much respect and admiration for the mighty reformers who went before the 1611 Bible. John Huss, Czechoslovakia, who was killed for his belief. We have mighty men that stood up to wicked kings and queens like Calvin and Knox. Brothers and sisters, it's not just the English, but there was those right across Europe, right across the movement of the House of Israel, where you can see God's providential hand, not only as people, but his word following. 
And this week, we've gone from Alexandria to Antioch, right up through the Bible. And I've tried to keep it as concise as I possibly can because you could be on each and every types of people for weeks and weeks on end. Right up now to the Reformation. The Reformation has sprung. God's word is preserved, it's inspired, and it's sovereign, and it has been kept. So next week, I want to start by looking at the singular volumes of the Bible, because before the King James Version, there was the Wycliffe, the Tyndall, the Matthew, the Lollards, the Geneva. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about them, but there was always one book. And the authorised version became the culmination of books. The first time that a mass translation had taken place. I will introduce you to the translators and their commitments, their attitude to prayer. And I said this last week that some of them spent up to six hours in prayer before they translated a single word. And I'm going to show you the craftiness of those who have used the Alexandrian text. Codex Fanaticus and Sinaticus. Vaticanus and Sinaticus. They disagree with each other, brothers and sisters, 3,000 times in the Gospels alone. But yet when you open your modern version of the Bible, it says the older manuscripts say this and the older manuscripts do that and the older manuscripts take this out and these don't exist and those aren't there. The oldest and most reliable manuscripts they are talking about are the perverted and corrupt versions that have come out of Alexandria. Brothers and sisters, I'll end with this. That if the Holy Ghost is not involved in the translation, it's not a translation you want in your hand. And I will show you the people who are involved in your modern translations. Some Christians are so educated, they miss the point. They believe it's more important to have an understanding of a language than it is to have the Holy Spirit guide their hand and their mind. So we're still on the journey. And I trust and pray it is only four weeks. Well, only be four weeks. I'm not going to bother in four weeks. I'd ruin, I'd ruin Saturday night. Thank you.